Gabe, Knox, why am I here all alone? Neil, help. Help, Neil. Welcome to Cross Politic. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm alone in my studio with no one. Help, there's music going. I'm blinking twice. I'm blinking twice. Help. Um, welcome to Cross Politic on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Knox, you're in trouble. Gabe, Come home now. I'm just going to sit here and drink my coffee. Welcome to another episode of Cross Politic. This is not Cross Politic. This is Toby hostage in the studio. Help, help. Um, thanks to all of our club members. You are, um, this is your fault, I think. I don't know how this is your fault. But um, anyways, appreciate you very much. Uh, you are the lifeblood of Cross Politic. It's why we've been able to grow so much. And we have big plans, massive plans, which is sort of why I'm all alone here in the studio. Did I mention that I'm all alone in the studio? And that this is, feels completely uncomfortable. Um, also want to remind you that we have an app. If you've not downloaded our app, you can get our show all the shows, including my daily news brief, which is basically my daily news brief now because Gabe and Knox are not here. Did I mention they're not here? They're not here. They haven't been here for like a week. I don't even know what they're doing. Um, but you, you can get In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey. You can get Law and Profits with Marcus Pittman. Uh, you got the Patriarchy. You got the Pugcast. And it's all right there on an app. And so, and, and you know, you realize that the gods are about to kill all of our social media platforms, right? I mean, we're getting, we're getting completely silenced and canceled and censored. Um, and so if you want access, direct access to all of our content, it's the app. So go to your favorite app store, search Fight, Laugh, Feast. That's how you get the content of this show, all our shows, and you get little you know notifications every time you get a new show to listen to. It's fantastic. Okay, Knox and Gabe are not here. I'm not going to do this for an hour. I mean, if you thought I was going to do this for an hour, you're crazy. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to share with you one of our favorite parts of the recent Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. There was tons of parts that were favorites. This is one of them, Dr. George Grant. Uh, from Franklin, his hometown boy, gave a talk um, on the messiness of Reformation and the hope in the midst of that messiness and called us to a, a lot of faith, particularly called us to prayer. Um, so we're going to drop you into that, um, that talk and enjoy. Well, welcome to Franklin, my hometown. It is great to have all of you here and... It is a great delight to be a part of this conference with all of my dear friends. Uh, Toby, in this uh, morning's first session, uh, talked about the first weapon that we have to have in our arsenal, the first tool that we need to have in our toolbox. I want to talk about the second one. If uh, confession is where we need to start, then surely it must be paired with supplication, intercession, petition, thanksgiving, with prayer. Uh, while all the world seems to be proclaiming 2020 as an annus oriabilis, a horrible year. Uh, we come here proclaiming fight, laugh, feast for the glorious purpose of a messy, complicated, hopscotching, hip-skipping reformation and a glorious hope therein. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we come to this second session this morning, we do pray 
for the outpouring of your spirit. Do what we can't do for all of our good intentions, for all of our cool t-shirts, for all of our words. Do what we cannot do. Stir us, forgive us, and send us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Benjamin Jowett, in his Victorian ideogrammic translation of Plato's Republic, famously rendered one of the philosopher's proverbial quips as, necessity is the mother of invention. He might just as well have asserted that it is also the mother of vocabulary. Now, after all, it is almost always the case that the emergence of new circumstances, new cultural situations, will necessitate new lexicons to describe them. It can't have escaped the attention of any of us that the COVID-19 novel coronavirus pandemic has not only changed our lives, it has dramatically changed our language. Our everyday conversations have been suddenly cluttered with epidemiological quarantine jargon. We started to talk about asymptomatic risks and case clusters and frequency curves and incidence rates. We found ourselves repeating statistics about droplet transmission, herd immunity, super spreaders, and incubation periods. I even heard a few folks, and not on cross-politic, I heard a few folks with newfound authority speak on things like viral seasonality, pathogenicity, immunocompromised virulence, and zoonoses. Like we're Toby Sumter or something. Uh, Perhaps most interestingly, uh, the epidemic seemed to uh, spread and continues to spread puns and slangs faster than the virus itself. So we dismally discuss the Corona session and Corona Geddon leading inevitably to Depressorona. On the brighter side, many coronials uh, find themselves corona cooning uh, and uh, corona cuffing with their corona teenies, uh, somehow micro-socializing in an extended virtual happy hour. Now, I was thinking about starting this whole talk with a whole slew of Uh, internet meme jokes about COVID-19, but uh, Toby told me at the beginning of the conference that there's a 98.76% chance that you wouldn't get it. Inevitably, a few derogatory terms have also crept into our vocabulary. Skeptics and conspiratorialists that have uh, been disdained as COVID truthers or quarantine trolls. Uh, those who disregard social distancing guidelines, on the other hand, that'd be you, have been dismissed as Wuhanified or covidiots. Concern for the more draconian government lockdown decrees has spawned talk of an emerging epidemiocracy or COVID-1984. We now have COVID tech apps offering quarantine tips Even the Wall Street Journal is now featuring the full 
uh, section spreads on quarantine trend fashions. And uh, COVID tough uh, resolves in order to somehow survive at these odd and peculiar days that we find ourselves in. It is now evident that viral jests, jibes, and neologisms have run rampant. As Rita Mae Brown has asserted, language is the road map of a culture. If that's the case, then our culture really is all over the map. Mark Twain once said uh, that the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. The truth of that quip has come home to me with force in these fractious, polarized, divisive days in which we live. Our world is filled with information and words. Now, on average, men speak 10,000 words a day and women almost double that number. Digital communication has exponentially increased the ease, the avenues, and the audience for our words. In some ways, that freedom should be celebrated especially given that there are so many around the world who don't have the ability or the right to speak openly about what they think and feel and believe. Uh, the ability to express ourselves can enrich our lives deeply. However, uh, when our language is unrestrained and unmindful or sloppy, or imprecise, we render our words meaningless at best, damaging at worst. Again, Mark Twain famously said, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. Being thoughtful and restrained with what we say takes more time, but it's worth the effort to be selective. We curate our lives with the images that we put onto Instagram, but we rarely curate our mouths. Our words gain significance, sincerity, and authenticity when they are rooted. Language is not only a gift, it's a responsibility. And these days... It is radical to be careful and to be wise with our words. The Bible repeatedly reminds us of the destructive power of the tongue. It is the, the psalmist as well as uh, James tells us, it's like, like the, a bit and a bridle, like a rudder of a ship, like a raging forest fire, the, or as Eagles alum Don Henley sings on his most recent country solo album. Yes, this is Franklin. It only takes a breath or two to tear your world apart. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can break your heart. On the other hand, the Bible also reminds us that with proper stewardship, the tongue can be a tree of life, a salve of healing, a soft answer of kindness amidst the harsh realities of a fallen world. We live at a time where every word seems to be up for grabs in terms of how it's used, how it's defined. Justice, freedom, gender, equality, uh, tolerance, intolerance, legacy, uh, reparations, privilege, uh, uh, lineage. Inigo Montea famously said, you keep using that word. I do not think that it means what you think that it means. Of course, none of this is anything new. 
reading the daily entries of Samuel Pepys in his famous diary during the last wave of the bubonic plague that swept through Europe is a helpful reminder. The plague was a scourge that ravaged the world's population again and again and again from the 14th through the 17th centuries. That final wave of the epidemic swept through the city of London in the spring of 1665 with an estimated 100,000 casualties in that city alone. Once infected, The chances of surviving the plague were terrifyingly slim. Most people, as Daniel Defoe recorded, were immediately and violently overwhelmed with it. The spread of the coronavirus can hardly be compared with the much more deadly plague. But reading Peeps does afford Uh, parallels between then and now. Uh, Pepys was a member of parliament and secretary of the admiralty under King Charles II, uh, the restored Stuart King. He had gained renown for his uh, uh, trenchant observations of everyday life in the 17th century, and his diary has become uh, one of the acknowledged classics of the Western tradition. The first recorded plague deaths in London were in March. But for weeks, Pepys was far more concerned with the trade war that England was waging with its European neighbors. But by April, he wrote that all the news in his local coffee shop uh, was of the plague. And some of the remedies against it, some saying one thing and some another, everyone an expert, everyone pontificating with zeal and angst. Sound familiar? As the contagion spread, uh, the king and his court left the city for the safety of the countryside, as did most doctors, lawyers, and wealthy merchants. Uh, Parliament was suspended, theaters and courts were closed, sporting events were canceled, uh, trade at home and abroad was suspended. The Council of Scotland closed its border with England, and according to the Royal Archive, people's lives and businesses suffered terribly because so many were shut up in their homes. Peeps wrote, Lord, how sad to see the streets so empty and the people so frightened. Apparently, it was at that time that two now familiar terms first came to be used by Peeps and by others. Epidemic and quarantine. Epidemic comes from the Greek epi, meaning upon, and demos meaning people. It meant prevalence among the people, referring to any trend or fashion. But during the plague, peeps associated the word with the spread of infectious diseases. Likewise, quarantine comes from the old French maritime, maritime term courant, meaning 40 days. Peeps used the word to describe the medical isolation of any kind and of any duration. Thus, it was a newly coined word with connotation that we still use today, except the quarantine only applied to sick people, not to all people. Uh, The contagion, of course, eventually ran its course. Uh, London recovered robustly, at least for a year. And then came the great fire, which spread through the city the next year, destroying 70,000 homes, 100 churches, including St. Paul's Cathedral and most businesses. And it was the account of the great fire that has made Pepys' diary such a classic. But rereading his account of the plague the previous year, I'm reminded of its surprising relevance. 
It was Pepys who called that year an Annus Oriabilis. A horrible year. And he noted that how apocalypticism seemed to run rampant. Particularly, he said, among those charged with declaring hope and resolve. The churches. Uh, Pepys was baffled by this. Now, as most of us are in our own day. We have, in 2020, had more than our regular allotment of woes. And we still have months to go before we can turn the calendar page. The mainstream media and social media alike have responded with apocalypticism and lamentations and jeremiads. A jeremiad is usually defined as a long and doleful complaint. It's a tale of sorrow, disappointment, and grief. It's a declaration of doom. It's passed into English from the French. It was actually first used in 1762 to describe uh, the lamentations of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. It was a It was a really clever etymological construction intended to call to mind Homer's Iliad and Virgil's Aeneid, a Jeremiad. In literature, ever since, the term has been used as, um, as a term of ridicule or mockery, implying that either the lamentations are exaggerated or that their proclamations are overwrought and tediously self-righteous. Despite this, uh, we in these days might well plead the case for a fresh outpouring of Jeremiads in our day with forces of cultural disintegration undermining the very foundations of everything that is near and dear. Such a prophetic stance might seem altogether apt. Issue the warnings, lament the injustices, expose the evils, denounce the barbarities, mock the foibles, set forth with zeal the very real consequences of sin and perversity. Hurl upon the land Jeremiah after Jeremiah, the likes of which a man has not seen nor beast since time immemorial. Seems like a pretty appropriate response. But perhaps there is a better option. A better option for us in these perilous times. An option that bespeaks hope and resolve. An option that that animates reformational vision. Perhaps we ought to consider the possibility of taking the course of the Nehemiah. I don't think it's any accident whatsoever that Toby in his talk and Joseph in his article in the magazine and I in my article invoke the image of Nehemiah, that Old Testament reformer. Nehemiah, in contradistinction uh, to uh, Jeremiah, was called to rebuild at a time when rebuilding seemed altogether impossible. Where where literally rubble was strewn as far as the eye could see. In contradistinction to the Jeremiah, therefore, a Nehemiah does not merely bemoan the transgressions of the evildoers. Its first concern is repentance, the repentance of God's own people. Unlike the Jeremiah, the Nehemiah does not only have a negative indictive tone, its primary concern is constructive. The Jeremiah is a cry of woe, an expression of righteous indignation, a resolution to, to mourn over the ruins 
In Nehemiah, it is a cry of humility, an expression of righteous repentance, a resolution to repair the ruins with whatever tools the Lord sets into our hands, doing the next right thing, and then the next right thing, and then the next right thing, until we set things aright. The walls are down. The rubble is nigh unto impassable. So much in our world, in our families, in our churches, are in shambles. So with a sword in one hand and a trowel in another, let the Nehemiahs begin. Such is the need of the hour. Oh God, grant us repentance and then enable us to sally forth to fight and laugh and feast, laying foundations for a messy reformation and a glorious hope. You know how the story begins. Nehemiah is sitting pretty. He's cupbearer to the king. And not just any king. This is the king who rules the world. Everyone wants to rule the world, Tears for Fears tells us. But Artaxerxes actually did. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Helechiah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, the remnant is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. And it's Soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah says, now I, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the laws that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, therefore, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But... If you return to me, keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight 
of this man, the king, for I was his cup bearer. That's an astonishing scene, isn't it? And I can't think of anything more pertinent, more relevant than this. And I say that standing behind a Lucite pulpit. He knew that he would have to win the king's favor. Chapter 1, verse 11. He knew that he would have to win the king's blessing. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He knew that he would need the king's resources. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. But for now, for now, he just prayed. For an entire month, he prayed. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. And then, at every turn throughout the whole story of Nehemiah, uh, we see that he makes supplication to the Lord. He does nothing, plans nothing, builds nothing, guides nothing, affirms nothing without calling on the name of the Lord first. G.K. Chesterton famously bemoaned the fact that we typically say grace for meals, but we never say grace before reading. Now, I'd love to update that. It's, it's a lamentable thing that we say uh, grace before meals, but not grace before Facebook. We're, we're not a praying people. And this is our job. At every turn, Nehemiah made supplication to the Lord. When he appeared before Artaxerxes at last, after a month of praying, he once again made, uh, before he he makes his petition uh, to rebuild the walls, he he makes petition to the Lord. He prayed. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4. When he made his way to the ruined city of Jerusalem. Before he even thought about taking up his task. Before he made his plans. But before he gathered with the leaders. He prayed. Chapter 2 verse 12. When threats of violence and conspiracy had jeopardized the entire Messy Reformation. The entire fledgling reconstruction project. What did he do? He prayed. Chapter 4, verse 2. When there were conflicts and crises among the people that required his judicious hand. First, he prayed. Chapter 5, verse 19. When an attempt on his life threatened the entire project. He did not panic. He did not mobilize his people to work out worst-case scenario agendas and strategies. He prayed, chapter 6, verse 9. When his own brethren turned against him, he prayed, chapter 6, verse 14. And of course, in any Messiah Reformation, that's always the case, right? It's Psalm 55 all over again. It was you, my beloved brother, who turned against me. So in Psalm 55, intercessions and supplications. In Nehemiah chapter 6, supplications, intercessions. And then, when the work on the wall was complete, before the feasting, before the rejoicing, Nehemiah prayed. Chapter 13, verse 31. 
what does Reformation look like? That was a question that was posed to Charles Haddon Spurgeon by one of his students at the pastor's Bible college in Stodridge. They asked him, how will we know when revival has arrived? What does Reformation look like? Spurgeon replied, it looks like sore knees. It looks like a praying people. It looks like the, the most well-attended service of the week is the cottage prayer meeting. It's when God's people pray. Of course, praying wasn't all that Nehemiah did, but it was the foundation of all that he did. He invested himself in careful planning. Whole books have been written about the, uh, the leadership efficiency of Nehemiah. He was a careful planner. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 uh, tell us that he, he was very strategic. He laid the groundwork uh, for the rebuilding of the walls uh, with cautious attention to detail. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Uh, but, but know this. As, as Nehemiah was planning, at first it looks like his primary object is to rebuild walls. That, that's not why Nehemiah was there. He was there to rebuild a people. And the walls were just a means to an end. And so he enlisted qualified help, chapter 2, verse 9. He encouraged his workers, uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He motivated them, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 20. He organized and delegated the various tasks, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 32. He anticipated difficulty and he made provision for it, uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. He improvised when he had to, and in messy reformations, you always have to. You always have to be flexible, and you always have to be able to turn on a dime. And so he did, chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. And of course, in the midst of it all, Nehemiah worked. He worked hard. His decrees weren't uh, decrees from on high. He was side by side with the laborers every step of the way. Chapter 4, verse 23. He sacrificed. Uh, chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. He led. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 30. He governed. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. He called the people to repentance and to the renewal of the covenant Nehemiah chapter 9. He established God's word as the lodestone, the cornerstone of all that they did. He encouraged its reading, chapter 8, verse 18. Its exposition, chapter 8, verse 13. Its application, chapter 8, verses 14 through 18. He established God's word as the absolute standard for worship, chapter 13, verses 10 through 14. He established it as the guideline for all commerce, chapter 13, verses 15 through 18. For governance, chapter 13, uh, verses uh, 4 through 9, for administering justice, uh, chapter 13, verses 19 through 22, and for family life, chapter 13, verses 23 through 29. If you can't tell, I want you to go home from this conference, and I want you to study the book of Nehemiah. And then what I want you to do is I want you to begin to walk in his footsteps in your family, in your local church. But I know, I know, I know the weaknesses of your church. I'm in one too. 
the church is constantly limping throughout history. As Hilaire Belloc said, the church is a perpetually defeated thing that always survives her conquerors. Reformation is messy. Read the difficulties, the adversities, the obstacles that Nehemiah faced at every turn. No one believed he could succeed. With a sword in one hand and a trowel in another, she called the people to do what not no people had ever done before. Recover from catastrophe. Repenting of their sins, running to the mercy of the one who makes all provision for us, standing fast in the grace, remembering the foibles of the past, confessing sin, falling on their faces before God in worship and prayer, and changing the world. Undergirding everything that Nehemiah did, undergirding every one of these necessary activities was his constant reliance upon Almighty God in prayer. Prayer binds and it looses, Matthew 18, 18. It casts down and it raises up, Mark eleven twenty three and 24. It ushers in peace, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It brings us forgiveness, Mark chapter 11, verse 25. It brings us healing and restoration, James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. It brings us liberty, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. It gives us wisdom, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. It gives us protection, Psalm 41, 2. Clearly, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Have you ever seen a praying church? A church that really builds its life around praying for friends and enemies. They're praying for wholeness and brokenness. Praying for righteous repentance and holy renewal. Have you ever seen a church like that? If you have, then that church is alive. That church is multiplying. That church is discipling. That church is teaching the word of God. That church is singing with zeal. That church is fighting, laughing, and feasting. That's what Nehemiah calls us to. In the book of Hebrews, we have this remarkable declaration. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise. It's, uh, it's taken from Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 20. So it declares, let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When we have messy reformation and glorious hope in mind, we begin to see things like COVID as an opportunity, not a liability. Do you believe in the providence of God? Do you believe that God has called you for just this moment? Do you believe that the church of Jesus Christ is called to lead, to provide answers, 
uh, to offer hope, uh, to go to people who are confused, who watch Tuesday night's debate and realize, oh my goodness, there really is no hope in politics. What a time to be alive. What a time to be called to be prayer warriors, to lay foundations for a future where this kingdom that cannot be shaken will change the world. Wouldn't it be great if the church in our day could actually quibble about something like justification by faith instead of about masks? Wouldn't it be great if our Facebook posts weren't filled with mere Jeremiah's uh, but suddenly, her righteous and holy Nehemiahs were manifested all across the land. Wouldn't it be amazing if we began to take the rubble and rebuild the walls? Then let's pray. Let's humble ourselves before Almighty God and pray. Uh, let's add to the arsenal of confession intercession and see what God will do. Part of the reason that Nehemiah prayed so much was she knew that he was not up for the task. Neither is your pastor. Neither are you. I was talking with uh, one of our deacons a little while ago in the middle of the break and um, we were talking about his family life, and he said, "I just sometimes I feel like I'm just not up to the task." By the way, half the people in red shirts are are deacons. Thank you, deacons, for your faithful service. He said, "Sometimes I just feel like I'm not up to the task," and I said, "Good." It's where you need to be. See, the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ comes to us and declares despair of your own competency and run to the mercy of Christ. Stand fast in his grace. Lay hold of his mercies. Do not depend upon your flesh. Do not rest and resolve and what you can do, what your talents can bring, what your resources are capable of doing. Instead, cry out to Almighty God like Nehemiah and say, Lord, show me how. And with sword in one hand and trowel in another, you go to the work. G.K. Chesterton once famously declared, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> I love that. He's, he's not actually advocating mediocrity. Far from it. What Chesterton was saying was, if a thing is worth doing, it's just worth doing. If you see it, you're probably called to it. He was saying, it doesn't matter what your resources are. It doesn't matter how big your building is. It doesn't matter how positive your parking spaces are. It doesn't matter how few the people are. It doesn't matter because if a thing is worth doing, it's just worth doing. Go do it. When King Alfred faced the impossible odds of the armies of the Viking invaders. That's it. Sorry. It was Neil's fault. I blame Neil. No, it's not really Neil's fault at all. Um, the rest of that talk is in the club portal. All the club members, you got access to it. If you're not a club member, well, you know, do some hunting around. You know, fightlaughfees.com, crosspolitik.com. All club members have access to the rest of that talk, all the talks. Um, there you go. Um, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and go baptize your babies. Till next week. Hi, I'm Robert Borton, CEO of Classical Conversations. Our most precious commodity is time. No one has ever lied on their deathbed wishing they had spent more time making money. They all wish they had spent more time creating a legacy. Our modern education system steals that legacy, steals that time from our children. That's why I'm passionate about homeschooling. That's why at Classical Conversations, we want to give you more time to create that legacy, follow your passions, and glorify God. Visit classicalconversations.com for more information. We did not design a cookie-cutter curriculum meant to chop students into appropriately shaped submissives or snowflakes for the secular zeitgeist. We designed our curriculum the way we did because we want our graduates to be equipped to stand courageously against that destructive zeitgeist and to honor their maker and how they, body, mind, and soul, battle to save their communities and the entire Western world from our current diseased insanity. New St. Andrews College is not in the business of rubber stamping graduates for this particular job market or that particular career. We aren't happy unless our graduates are equipped to tackle any constructive cultural task anywhere, from courtrooms to hospitals to job sites to movie sets to the highest risk job in the most important setting of all, the raising and training of the next generation of immortal souls around dining room tables and in pews. The world may have gone mad, but it's not the first time. It has been saved before and by particular people, many of whom shared a very particular type of education. Augustine, Calvin, Jefferson, Churchill, and many lesser-known heroes in times of madness all had one type of education, one type of training in common. And it's the same kind of rigorous education we currently pursue surrounded by the rolling wheat fields of Idaho. By God's grace, our civilization will be saved or rebuilt from the smoking ruins. The men and women capable of such a task, capable of fearless joy and fiery laughter, all while undertaking such hard cultural labor, those are the kind of graduates we want, the kind we expect. They are why we exist and why we teach what we teach. So you might call it a major in world building or culture shaping or a major in saving civilization. We call it classical Christian liberal arts. New St. Andrews College, saving civilization since 1994.